Our scripture reading this morning comes from Ruth as we uh, work our way, continue to work our way through the book. Ruth 3, 1 through 5. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you, that it may be well with you? Is not Boaz our relative, with whose young women you were? See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Wash, therefore, and anoint yourself, and put on your cloak, and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. And she replied, All that you say, I will do. This is the word of the Lord. Do you guys like movies? Do you guys remember when we used to go to the movies? Does that feel like that long ago? Like there was a movie out and you would actually go to a place and see it there. Uh, Who knew in such a short time that's almost become an extinct activity of going to the movies. Now you just stay home. But um, I I always loved movies. Uh, One of my favorites is a a classic uh, called A Few Good Men. You guys, you guys know that movie? Okay, so, so what's the line? Or a few good men, what's the line? You can't handle the truth, right? I'll say it in your best Nicholson voice. You can't handle the truth. Um, well, this morning, I, I need to tell you a really uh, weird story. And it, it's a story that makes a lot of people uncomfortable. Um, so much so that there are a lot of scholars and, and, and preachers who, who just dance around the passage, who, who maybe just approach it and, and then try to maybe spiritualize it or, or just ignore it altogether. Um, why? Because they can't handle the truth? Maybe. But, but for this story, really, it's just that it's weird and people don't like talking about weird things. It's, it's awkward and it's, it's, it's just easier to just avoid it. Okay, and, and, and not for us this morning. We're, we're not going to avoid it. We're going to work through a weird story together. Parents, don't worry. We're mostly PG today. Um, I'll do my best. Um, <laughs> uh, if, if you were um, with us for the very first uh, part of this sermon series, you might remember that I said, hey, this is not uh, a dating how-to uh, book. This, the book of Ruth is not um, the, the, the place where you need to go get all your dating advice, okay? Just, just know it's different, and, and uh, you know, I, I will not be sharing the advice that Naomi's about to give Ruth uh, with my daughter in the future, right? So imagine your daughter, would you share the advice that Naomi is giving Ruth? I, I hope not. If, if so, we need to talk. Let me let me give you some guidance. We're going to talk about the sweet part of this, you know, if you want to call it a love story of the book of Ruth. We're going to talk about that one next week. We're not there just quite yet. So um, this is not a romantic story this morning. It's weird. Um, it's icky a little bit. And, and, and you may find yourself just kind of wanting to shake Naomi um, for what she's about to say. And, and this morning, the story progresses rapidly, right? It's, it's kind of the turning point of the book. And, and, and we've, we've been looking for the last few weeks kind of at this question, is there life after loss? Is, is there hope after heartbreak, right? Uh, hope after hurt. 
And, and, and this morning, hope is going to come alive, okay? Um, how do we turn our hopes into actions? That's our, our, our question for this morning as we pray together. Let's pray. Father, would you guide us in your word? Would you help us to see what is from you, what you would have us to take from it? Open, open all of us, our hearts, our minds, our wills to you. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we read our passage just uh, uh, a minute ago, and, and it's, it's only five verses, and so we're going to kind of go through them again here in just a second. Um, remember, here, here we are in our, in our, our passage in Ruth. We have two widows, right? And they're both um, in a desperate situation where they both need protection. They both need a future. Um, and and we've, we met last week this man named Boaz, um, and he has shown them grace and kindness by letting them harvest food from his fields, right? We saw them, they, they have the opportunity to get the leftovers. Um, most scholars think we're in six weeks-ish from when they have started to harvest <clears throat> and met Boaz and been around. Okay, so six weeks from when Boaz and, and Ruth have first kind of officially met, as best we could guess, maybe two months, somewhere in there. And, and we can just say um, Naomi is getting a little impatient, okay? She's, she's seen this window of opportunity. She recognizes, like, the best possible ever outcome is, is like, right there. It's so close, right? And she's going to get a little impatient. Um, she recognizes the opportunity that, for Ruth, and, and, and she's decided it's time to kind of seize the day, if you will, um, <clears throat> So let me, let me just kind of set our scene, right? We live in, our, our story is in Bethlehem, which means house of bread, right? That's, the, that's, that's what Bethlehem means, house of bread. And so you can imagine that at the end of barley and wheat harvest, it's a big deal in a place called house of bread. <clears throat> it's kind of like their main event. It's a time of, of pride and accomplishment and celebration, Right, the, the, the wheat and the barley have been harvested, and, and now it's time for the next step. It's, it's time for threshing and winnowing. And, and today we have right, all kinds of machines to do this. Right? We have giant tractors that, that take care of this process uh, so that people don't have to. But, but back then, this was a, a pretty lengthy process. And, and so I'm just going to show you just a little bit about it. Right? So, so this first picture <clears throat> is kind of a typical example of, of, of threshing. And so notice you've got these, you know, a pair of oxen and they're pulling a sled and, and, and they would have had people standing on top of it to push it down. And, and under that sled, you would see maybe pieces of metal, uh, the more advanced they were, or they would just have strapped rocks to the thing. And basically they're just using it to cut and they're just cutting it over and over and over. They're turning it into a mulch, if you will, you know, everything that's been harvested. And so you can kind of see they're working their way and, and, and scattering it to the outside. Um, and, and then we'll, we'll, we'll kind of keep going here. And so, so let's go to that next picture. So this is a modern-day sled, right? This is still happening in parts of the world uh, where we don't, they don't have machines and tractors doing the work. And you can see they're, they're, they're just turning this almost, almost powder by the time they've just 
grinding this thing over and over with this sled, you know, making the kids just sit in it for hours as, as they pull it around and around, and <clears throat> there's just a little bit left there in the middle. That's kind of what it would have looked like uh, f- for, this, for this process. They would have found a kind of a flat bowl area that would have kept it in, and they just keep working it and working it. And then uh, what's this last picture? One more. So this is the winnowing process. So once everything's been threshed with the sled, right, what you have left is kind of this hopefully kind of a, a mulched, powdered up deal, right? And what are they doing here, right? They're throwing it up into the air, and they're going to let wind kind of do, do the hard work of separating this stuff. So the stuff that they want is heavy. They'll throw everything up, hope the wind pushes all the stuff away that they don't want, right? And then all that will be left is the good stuff. And so that process just happens over and over. Has anybody ever winnowed before? There's probably some people that have done this, maybe. I don't know. It's, it's, it's a long process, right? It takes them a long time. So you can imagine when this is all finally finished, how excited they would be, and also how they're going to protect it, right? They're not going to leave it so that somebody can just come along and, and take their piles uh, of the good stuff. They're going to stay with it. And so that's, that's kind of where we are. Um, winnow, winnowing in this region normally happened at night, right? So in, in Bethlehem, they would have to do this at night because that's when the wind picked up enough for them to do this well. And so there was a winnowing process, and, and people it, it gathered. There was, there was, you know, an event. There was a celebration. Um, and so just, yeah, like every—you guys remember going to fall festivals or harvest festivals? I guess probably they still happen around here some, uh, right? Where, where when the work is done, it's time to celebrate all that's happened that year. And, 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 and this was kind of happening in this culture at this time. So the threshing floor would be a place of celebration um, where all they could see what all they had done. And, and the, the threshing floor has, has a rowdy reputation, Okay. There, there's not bowling leagues back then, right? They, um, there's, there's no tailgating in this, in this time period. What they would do is, is go to the threshing floor. That's where, that's where guys would go to hang out. Um, it's not the kind of place a respectable woman would go, especially late at night, right? Nothing good happens, right? That's what your mom said. Nothing good happens at midnight, right? So here, here comes the non-G-rated part of this sermon, Right? So any Jew who's reading the book of Ruth in this moment, right, as they're reading chapter 3 and what Naomi is telling her, her daughter-in-law to do, three things are going to come immediately to their mind, okay? And I'm just going to paraphrase them, give you the idea. The first story is Genesis chapter 19, and it's the story of Lot and his two daughters, okay? You, some of you know where I'm going, right? The two daughters get impatient, and they are going to do a terrible thing. They're going to trick their father and violate lots of things. And, um, and in that process, they end up having children, okay? And one of them has a son named Moab, right? So where is, where is Ruth from? She's from Moab, right? And this is part of why the Israelites don't like Moab. Um, they would be cousins, but... They don't really get along. And so the first story that a Jew would have heard as, as they're hearing Naomi give advice to Ruth about what to do, well, this sounds like Lot's story, right? Sneak in somebody's tent late at night while they've had um, too much to eat and drink in a celebration? This sounds like Lot. Okay, the second story is found in Genesis chapter 38. And it's the story of Judah. And remember, he, 
he didn't fulfill his promise of, of giving his son to this, to this older woman, this daughter-in-law that he had, right? And so what did, her name was Tamar, and what did Tamar do? She tricks um, Judah uh, and, and um, deceives him, and they produce a child because he didn't keep his promise, right? So, and then the third story that any Jew would have come to right away is in Numbers chapter 25. And in that, there's a story of um, Moabite women, and apparently they were very beautiful. The Moabite women had a reputation of being attractive, but they were also kind of like, um, they, this is the story where they gain the reputation of being tricky, right? They have a, they have a reputation of, of being women who will entrap men in bad situations, and they do that to the Israelites um, through, through some dancing, okay, through some different types of dancing, they entice the Israelite men into sin. So that's the reputation of Moabite women. So now, right, think through this story, what we just heard, right? Naomi's going to say, hey, Ruth, here's what we need to do, right? I need you to go find Boaz tonight. Wait till he's, you know, had lots of time to celebrate and is in a really good mood, and I want you to sneak into his tent and and get under his covers, basically, is what she's told him, right? Um, ah! This is not a good story. Okay. Right? So Naomi says, look, it, it's, it's, you know, we've been getting some grain from Boaz. That's all great. Um, but, but that's not a permanent situation, right? We need to fix. We need to fix this thing. The goal is to get you a husband. The goal is to get me an heir, right? All of that. Boaz is the best possible candidate. The thing seems to be going well. It's time to make our move, right? That's kind of what's happening right here. So find him tonight at the celebration. Verse 4, let's, let's read this again. It says, when he lies down, right, after he's had enough to eat and drink, she says, uh, note the place where he is lying. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down. He will tell you what to do. Parents, don't tell your daughters this, right? Do whatever he says to do in the middle of the night, in his tent. Don't give this advice, right? But so let me just explain real quickly. This is not, because my first thought, maybe your thought was, well, maybe this is some sort of like Jewish ritual, right? The uncovering of the feet was like a betrothal process, and it was very proper. And Nope, not. Not at all. No, we don't see this anywhere else in, like, biblical reading in Jewish, like, scholars are like, this is, we don't know where she came up with this idea. This isn't, this isn't anything anybody's ever heard of before, okay? Furthermore, her language is a little, we'll just say sketchy, on whether she is asking Ruth to be G-rated or not, Okay? Um, there is debate among scholars about some of this, but just trust me when I tell you there are good reasons to be concerned that when she says, go uncover his feet, that it might mean something else, okay? So um, it's just a weird story, and that's why we're not hiding from the truth. We're embracing it this morning. The good news, and we're going to see it next week, is that what actually happens is that Ruth and Boaz, from all that we can tell, are very appropriate and are very proper and do what they should have done. We're just not sure about what Naomi is suggesting here, okay? 
But we can say what she has asked her daughter-in-law to do is scandalous, right? She could have been in big trouble in lots of ways, right? What happens to women who do uh, who, who find themselves in bad situations in biblical times, right? Bad things happen to women like that, right? You could easily be stoned. You could easily be cast out of society. There's all kinds of things that could have happened. What could happen to Boaz if somebody had walked in and found Boaz with a woman covering his feet? Bad, right? Bad. It, let's just say what Naomi has asked to, to Ruth to do here has put Boaz and Ruth in a really potentially compromising situation. And then look at verse 5. How does, how does Ruth... She knows. She's, she's a smart person. She responds. She says, All that you say, I will do. We don't know how she said We don't know her tone of voice like, Uh, what? Okay. Right? Is that how she said it? Or was it, yeah, that sounds like a great idea, Mom. I'll, I'll do it. Here we go. She knows the implications. She's willing to be obedient. Um, and we're going to see next week that she actually goes above and beyond what Naomi tells her to do. And she does a better thing. But at this point, you're probably wondering, what is happening? Why is this in the Bible? Where is Nick going with this? Right? I'm wondering the same thing. Just hang with me for a second, because I think, I think it's actually a really important and helpful passage, okay? Um, it, it reminds me of a passage that we find uh, in the book of Acts, and it's in Acts chapter 16. And let me just read it to you real quickly. In, in Acts 16, it says, Paul and his companions traveled throughout the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been kept by the Holy Spirit from preaching the word in the province of Asia. When they came to the border of Mysia, they tried to enter Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus would not allow them to. So they passed by Mysia and went down to Troas. During the night, Paul had a vision of a man of Macedonia standing and begging him, come over to Macedonia and help us. Um, it says, after uh, Paul had seen the vision, we got ready at once to leave for Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. Okay, so this weird thing happened in that, in that passage, besides all the long names of cities. Did you catch it? Right, Paul's on a journey. He has a plan. It says that he's taking the gospel east. It says he's going to Asia. Right? He's going, like most people think, he's headed towards India. That's where, that's where Paul is headed with the gospel on this missionary journey. Through modern-day Turkey, right? he's, he's headed east. That's where he's headed. But it says the Holy Spirit stops him. And, and then the very... Uh, very next sentence says they turn and they go west. They change directions completely. And then we see it says Paul had a vision, um, right? And, and he's going to have this idea of a whole new missionary journey. And then that last part, it says we, right? It, we, pick up the, we pick up Luke, the, the guy who writes the book of Acts. We pick him up right there in Macedonia. From there, it goes to all the places you think of when, when I talk about places of the New Testament, right? Ephesus, Philippi, Corinth, Athens, all of that. That's where Paul's going to go from there. So I, as I think about this passage, right, I think it, it deals with the same struggle that you and I have every day. It, it, what is the relationship between God's will and our actions, have you ever been in Naomi's shoes before, right? Where you, where you, where you, 
you, you see a thing that could happen and think, well, maybe, maybe this is the God's plan. This is what he's doing, right? I, I think this is what's supposed to happen. Why isn't it happening yet? God, what are you doing? God, I've been praying. Are you going to do something? It seems like I'm jumping in. I'm, I'm going to go. I, I'm, I'm, I'm going to make it happen. It's been six weeks, God. I, I just, I, I'm not sure is Boaz going to propose or not. What, what's the plan? And in her mind, she just says, look, I think I'm going to do what's best, and I, we're going to go for it. In a different way, I think that Paul is in a similar situation in the book of Acts. I think he has an idea of what, he, what he's supposed to do. God, I think, I think this is the plan, right? They, they've split, and Barnabas and, 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 and uh, John Mark have gone a different direction. I'm not going to go their way. I'll go over here. We're taking the, we're taking the gospel to Asia. Here we go. He uses his brain. He, he, he kind of thinks about it. He, he asks some people. He, he seems to be making the right decision. He doesn't seem to be disobedient in anything he's doing, right? But it, it doesn't seem that that's what God wants him to do because it says the Holy Spirit stops him. The Holy Spirit prevents him from going and, in fact, turns him around and then gives him a vision. Does, does God punish Paul for, for going the wrong direction? Does it say he was stricken with whatever and broke his leg and, right? No. It just says he stopped him. We don't know the circumstances of that. There's probably a whole book that could be written on why Paul realized, hey, we can't go this way anymore. God, God has made it clear to us that this isn't the path. But God doesn't seem to be angry. He just turns him around. It's pretty easy for us to look at this and say, hey, Naomi had a pretty risky, foolish plan. I think her intentions are good. You know, some, some have said, well, at least Naomi's finally doing something, right? In the first chapter, she's just bitter. In the second chapter, right, she sends her daughter off to go do all the work, and she's just waiting for her to bring her some food, right? Maybe that's a cynical way to look at it. But finally, at least in the ch- third chapter, she's coming up with an idea. She's doing something. She is off the floor, right? And that's what we talked about last week. There, there, there comes a time where you have to get up in the middle of hurt, in the middle of pain, in the middle of loss. You've got to just get up. And, and there's not a real theologically deep process to that. It's just getting up and saying, God, I trust you with another day. I'm getting up. I don't know. I don't know how to breathe. I don't know where to look. I'm just going to get up. That's chapter two. That's an act of faith in, it, in itself. And now, she, she's got hope, doesn't she? Chapter 3. Hope is when you start to come up with a plan. Right? When you don't have hope, you don't come up with a plan. At least she's seeing, hey, God might be at work here. I'm off the floor. Now what? She's desperate, and I think she makes a desperate decision. Probably not the best thought out. Probably should have asked some friends for some advice but she makes a plan. And, and amazingly, we would say, God doesn't seem to punish her in this. He doesn't go, well, I had this plan in, in mind, but you ruined it by putting Ruth in this terrible, terrible spot. He says, I'm going to take your plan, and I'm going to fix it. I'm going to redeem it. I'm going to make it better. We'll see, start to see that next week. And the question is, how does all this work? 
How do we know what to do? I, I, I find great comfort in, in knowing that Paul didn't have all the answers all the time. And didn't. If Paul doesn't know what to do, there's certainly going to be times in our lives where we don't know what to do. And I actually find comfort in that. It doesn't seem like God says, hey, there's this one answer and you've got to find it. And if you don't find it, I'm going to smite you. I'm going to kick you to the curb if you didn't get it figured out all just right. If Paul can't, and Peter can't, and if those guys can't, maybe that's part of the process that we don't get to see, and we don't get to know how it all works out all the time and exactly what to do. And I can't give you a simple, tidy phrase or answer to how all that works, right? God's will and his divine sovereign plan and our, and our actions, I don't know. I just tell you that it, it does, okay? It's, it's somewhere in the middle, right? We can make errors on both sides of this, right? Where, where we can be too forceful without seeking God and just say, well, I don't know. I'm just going to go, just going to plow ahead no matter what, right? And then we can sit on the other side and go, well, I'm just going to keep praying about it and praying about it and praying about it, and maybe God's going to do something. There's, there's got to be somewhere in the middle, right, where he's asking us to use our hands and our feet and our brains to do And, and, and the book of Ruth is about the divine providence of God. It's about seeing the hand of God as he cares for these two widows, right, in, in the worst of situations, and how he's going to take that terrible situation and, and how he's going to turn it into the most beautiful story of all time, which is Jesus, right? Because I, I think you've probably all figured it out by now. This, this leads to Jesus. This story is, is pointing to Jesus, and we'll get to that in, more in a couple of weeks if you don't know. This story has the hands, the fingerprints of God pointing to Jesus. And and it's amazing. It's the greatest story ever. And Ruth is going to be a part of it in a beautiful way. But the book of Ruth is also the story of a bitter, worrying, meddling widow. And despite all her best efforts to mess everything up, God is going to redeem her foolish plan. God is going to redeem her bitterness and inactivity at times too. It's the story of people trying to move forward, trying to live life again after hurt and loss. And they're doing some good things and they're doing some really messy stuff too. And I will tell you, I'm just so glad that my plans of my life haven't all been written down in a book that's hanging on forever. Right? I'm sure in eternity someday I'm going to run into Naomi and she's going to say, hey, cut me some slack a little bit. Right? I'm, I messed up, but God used it. And, 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 yeah, everybody's been reading my mess-ups for the last however many thousands of years, right? Just be glad he didn't put yours in a book. Pretty fortunate. Is this good news this morning? I, I would say most of the stories in my life, right, the ones that, that matter, the ones that we talk about or that, that I think through, right, they start off something like, I didn't know what to do. Then I had this idea, and I thought God maybe wanted me to go do something. And then I made a mess of it, and it was a total disaster. And I sinned, and I, I'm, it was awful. And then somehow, it just got better and better and better. And then as time moved on, I could look back at that and say, boy, God did something with that that it would have just been a disaster on its own. I can see how God did all these amazing things 
through my mistakes, through my sins, and how he gets the glory in this, these crazy stories of redemption. But we don't get the playbook ahead of time. There's no easy button for this, right? I love those commercials. I just push, where's the easy button for, for this? It requires us to seek him. It requires us aligning our hearts with his. And there's an essential piece where we just have to get up and take some, some action and do something. Not knowing exactly how it's going to work out. Not exactly all the details of what he wants us to do. And we have to be willing to endure hardship and all of that. Right? And somehow God is going to fix and redeem that thing. And so here is the good news. Okay? Here's the peace that I find. We're all foolish. And we all do really, really foolish things like Naomi. Guys, I'm just telling you, I've come up with the, the, the most harebrained schemes ever as a youth pastor that would have put me in jail today for some stuff. You did what? That seemed like a good idea when I was 22. I don't know. I'm so glad that God redeemed some of those harebrained ideas. Jesus is always in those situations, always with grace and mercy. And he's always willing to work things out for the good of those who love him. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the story of Ruth. And it is a story of your hand and your divine providence and, and how you do amazing things with broken things. And how it's also a story of of. of of humans who make a mess of their lives. And it's the story of how you're never going to leave it there. You never leave the mess. You fix it. You redeem it. You, you turn it into a, a story that points to who you are, a, a, a story of, of, of your goodness and mercy and grace and, and glory. God, help us to have faith. Help us to pursue you. Help us to know when it's appropriate to act and to trust. Even when we can't see the whole thing, we don't get the playbook. God, help us to trust. Thank you for loving us more than we could ever know. Thank you that you are in control. Even when we see nothing but, but chaos, you are in control. And so we do look at the world around us. We look at our, our families, our friendships, the relationships, all that we do. God, we see chaos at times. Help us to see that you're bigger than that. You are redeeming all things for your glory, for our good. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.